Let's pray. Lord, it is good to be in your presence. And I pray that you were pleased with our voices this morning. I believe that everybody that is here this morning can testify that you indeed are a way maker. That you have made ways for us in the various circumstances of our lives when all hope seemed to be lost. When we were in no other position but to simply trust in you to bring about the impossible. And that's exactly what you have done. By your sovereignty, we believe that you brought every one of us here this morning. And we want to continue to lift you up through the preaching of the word of God. So enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we may know the hope of our calling, the riches of our glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of your power toward us who believe. Teach us your ways and speak through me. I pray this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's get our Bibles out and turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. Matthew 5, verse 7. We continue our series different. This morning's sermon is entitled, Happy are the Merciful. Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. Back in December of 1991, I was in a car with some friends. We were coming back from a to Ohio University, uh, we had left the Campus Crusade for Christ Christmas Conference in Indianapolis early that morning, and I was driving. Now, Indianapolis to Columbus and on down, you know, it's about a three-hour drive, four-hour drive or something like that to Athens, Ohio. But anyways, unwisely, I was not paying attention to how fast I was driving. Now, I say unwisely because uh, having driven our, our rental van or car down from the Columbus airport a couple weeks ago down to my parents' place, we were reminded of the Ohio State Patrol. It is legendary in terms of they are known throughout the country. They're everywhere. They love giving tickets, okay? And they're just, they're like insects on the road. They're everywhere. So um, it's not uncommon, I wrote here, to see three or more highway, highway patrol cars. These are highway patrol cars. It's not a sheriff you know, or local police. Highway patrol cars in the span of one hour of driving. That does not happen here in Washington State. And God bless this state for that. <laughs> now I knew this, and I was still driving over the speed limit. Because the speed limit to me is, in many ways, just a suggestion you know, and uh, for all of you out there that are laughing, you're like, 
yeah, I think that, but I can't believe that the pastor actually said that because it actually kind of makes me feel better about myself now that I'm not the only one that thinks that. But, I mean, who drives, like, if it's 65? Everyone drives about 70. I mean, the reality is, even in Ohio, in the turnpike, the speed limit is 65. Everyone is going 75, even the police officers. They don't pull you over for that. If you go a little over that, they pull you over. So, really, what is the speed limit on that road? It's what the flow of traffic is doing. That being said... That morning, all those years ago, I got to experience the sick feeling, feeling that follows the flashing red lights one sees in your rearview mirror. Now, my wallet got to feel something as well. It became a little lighter as I received justice in the form of a costly speeding ticket. Two winters ago, I was driving to church early on a Sunday morning. It was pitch black outside, and as you may know, I live right up the hill in Lakeland Hills off of Kersey Way. So almost every Sunday morning, I drive down this hill on my way to work. Since it's a hill, and I want to save my brake pads, and it was early on a Sunday morning, as you know, there is no traffic on a Sunday morning in the state of Washington. And no one else was out driving, I decided to just coast down the hill. And the reality is, I coast down that hill almost every time I travel down it. The speed limit on that hill is 35 miles per hour. But about three quarters of the way coasting down the hill, I got to experience that sick feeling that follows the flashing red lights. One sees in your rear view mirror. I was pulled over and was told by the police officer, that was clocked going over 60 miles per hour. But I was also told that the homeless were living in the woods off that road. And, uh, you know, I, driving that fast was a danger to them. Now, I told the police officer that I was a pastor on my way to church. I had hoped he would be merciful to me upon learning I was a, a minister because I know that, that both pastors and police officers share a common bond. We're the only two people in the New Testament that are called ministers. Did you know that? Yeah. Pastors and policemen. Policemen are ministers of justice. Look it up in Romans 13. Well, my, my weak and desperate ploy happened to work because it turned out that the police officer was a believer, and in his mercy, he let me off with a warning. So there are two stories that detail my driving habits, one ending in justice and the other ending in mercy. My wallet prefers the story ending in mercy. Now, I am sure that you can relate to my story, so certainly no one else in this room has ever not gotten a speeding ticket, Right? Let's have a little confession time, shall we? Who has got a ticket this year? I have not this year. Anybody? Any honest people? Ryan, God bless you. All right. Jacob? Yeah, you can just, just keep your arm up for this, this time. Just keep it up, all right, Jacob? Just keep it up. Just grab the, the, the wood behind you. Yeah, and just leave it up there, okay? Anyone got two tickets this year? Anybody? Nobody? When was your last ticket? Anybody want to confess? Ten years? Ten years. 
22 years. 1993. Two years ago. For Robin? All right. 85. Wow. Do you like that, that feeling you get in the, in the pit of your stomach when uh, you're pulled over and like, oh, I'm caught and so on? Yeah. Anyways, let's face it. We all prefer mercy when we're pulled over rather than justice. Now, the good thing about our Lord is he prefers mercy too. I remember him speaking to the Pharisees. He says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I like that about God, don't you? Now, since God desires mercy, it's not surprising that he says mercy is to characterize the lifestyle of a citizen of his kingdom. Let me take a closer look at this fifth beatitude this morning. Blessed are the merciful. Matthew 5, verse 7. For they shall receive mercy. I cannot tell you, I had to throw this in there because this was absolutely a revelation and shocking to the audience when they heard our Lord say this. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Because the culture that they lived in, it it did not understand or even value mercy. The Romans, the Roman world, didn't even know the meaning of mercy. Roman philosophers said mercy is the disease of the soul. It's the disease of the soul, which means mercy was a sign of weakness because you didn't have what it takes to do what should be done. The Romans glorified justice, courage, discipline, and power. They despised mercy because to show somebody mercy was a weak thing to do. And here is a couple examples, and these are pretty extreme When a child was born into the world, that is, at the time of the Roman dynasty, the father had the right of patria potestas. He would take the newborn, hold the child up, and if he wanted the child to live, he held his thumbs up. If he wanted the child to die, he held his thumb down. And the child, if the thumb went down, was immediately drowned. Here's another example. If a Roman citizen didn't want his slave anymore, he would take out a knife and kill his slave and bury him, and there was no recourse. So there was no mercy in Roman culture. So you can imagine when Jesus says, happy or blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. That's shocking. Now, okay, but I'm sure there were some Romans there that were listening, but there's a lot of Jews that were there. Well, how about Jewish culture? Well, there was very little mercy at this time in the Jewish culture as well. The culture as a whole was very legalistic. Now, we find plenty of examples of merciless behavior in the New Testament. But in John chapter 8, do you remember the story of the woman who was caught in adultery? Do you remember that story? John chapter 8, verses 2 through 5. Just listen. It says, early in the morning... Jesus came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women, so what do you say? They weren't really cared about this woman. 
care about her at all. They wanted to catch Jesus in a conundrum. But if you look closely, it says that the woman was caught in the act of adultery. My question to you is this, how they know where to find her in this act? The woman was obviously somewhat set up, right? But also the fact that it was probably another Pharisee or a scribe that was committing adultery too. That's why they knew where she was. Some historians say that she would have been dragged out almost nearly naked and brought before the crowd. So in her fear and humiliation, they drag her to Jesus. In a crowd, they publicly expose her sin and condemn her. And of course, the question is, well, where is the mercy? Because clearly it's a New Testament thought, but it was a very legalistic culture. But here's the contrast. After answering the scribes and Pharisees, what was our Lord's response? It was great mercy. He says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. That is great mercy. In order to understand what our Lord is saying to us when he says, blessed are the merciful, Let's look at the word mercy for a moment because I think it'll open your eyes a little bit to what really biblical mercy is and what God is looking for. Now, the Greek word for mercy means sympathetic or compassionate. And you should probably write that down. Now, while this specific word is only used twice in the New Testament for mercy, it is part of a broader term that gives clarity on its meaning. It's a word that means to go beyond compassion and sympathy. Okay? It means compassion in action or sympathy in action toward anyone who has any need. Now, its usage in Matthew 5 7, blessed are the merciful, means it's not a weak sympathy which selfishness feels but never does anything to help. Do you see the difference? Perhaps you understand mercy to be that feeling that you get that is accompanied by no action. That is not mercy. Jesus demonstrates this mercy. But it's always a mercy combined with action. Here is an example in the Bible. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Why did the priest pass by on the other side? A dead body, perhaps. You don't go by that. You become unclean. So likewise, a Levite when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side, all of a sudden, verse 33, a Samaritan, a half-Jew, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, now watch this, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, 
and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever you whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. That is compassion in action. That is sympathy in action. That is mercy. That is what a citizen of God's kingdom looks like. Be clear on that so far. Good. Jesus continually, regularly demonstrates this type of mercy. Let's look at some examples from his life. It says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So not only did Jesus feel compassion or sympathy for the people, but his compassion demanded action. In this case, a call to pray for laborers. Here's another example. It says, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Jesus' feelings of compassion demanded action. In this case, he healed the sick. Another example. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. Jesus' feelings of compassion demanded action. In this case, the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And that leads to the second point of all this, and that is what I call feeling mercy. If you are a citizen of God's kingdom, you have to understand that compassion, or that mercy, compassion, sympathy, it is a feeling. It is a feeling. The word compassion, it literally means to have the bowels yearn. To feel sympathy or pity. To be moved with compassion. You think about sympathy, which is constructed from the Greek word sim, S-Y-M, meaning together, and pathos, referring to feelings or emotion. It's used to describe when one person shares the same feelings of another. You share the same feelings of another. Literally, you are in the feeling of the other person. That is compassion. That is sympathy. And that is mercy. You are feeling what the other person is feeling. Let me give you an example that you can probably relate to. Maybe you're, you've, you've, over your life, span of your life, you've been driving down the road, and you see someone that's had a flat tire. And maybe it's, it's some poor weather. And, and as most of us just drive by, but we will have a feeling towards that person. Oh, I'm, I feel bad that that happened to that person. Can you relate to that? Yeah. That is the beginning of compassion. Now, mercy, compassion, sympathy, would pull over to help. That's the word here. But at least that feeling... That's what he means here. That's part of being merciful. Now, there are two indispensable requirements 
And they are requirements, I believe, to being a merciful or sympathetic or compassionate person. The first requirement is that this. You have to have a soft heart. You have to have a soft heart. By that I mean you have the ability to feel. And please hear me on this. You will not be a merciful person if you have a hardened heart because hardened hearts are incapable of feeling. Now, what hardens a heart? Sin. And we must be diligent to guard against sin in our lives. Again, above all else, what are we to do, the Proverbs say? Guard your heart. Sin hardens. Hebrews 3.13 But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So the first requirement is you must have a soft heart. Now this is why our Lord put the second beatitude, mourning for our sin, before mercy. Those who mourn over their sin, I mean, they are continually confessing their sin, they're keeping short accounts with God. They and only they are the ones who are merciful. In other words, a lifestyle of confession, it's a prerequisite for a lifestyle of mercy. If you let sin build up in your life, I, I, you know it will happen. If you've experienced it, it will only harden your heart. That's why you can't tolerate sin in your life. And again, I want you to see how these Beatitudes build on one another. The second indispensable requirement for being a person of mercy, to, to feel mercy, it's not only a soft heart, but you have to have an unhurried life. An unhurried life. People who suffer from what I call hurry sickness, which is most Americans are guilty of this, they simply do not feel compassion for others. They're too busy to have the time to feel for others. Their busy lifestyle distracts them from hearing God speak. It disconnects them from their emotions and eventually hardens their hearts. Think of Martha. The sister of Lazarus and Mary knew this from experience. Just so busy, so hurried, she was hardened toward our Lord. I know this from experience. I believe most of you know this from experience. If God's kingdom people are to give and receive mercy, we must maintain a soft heart and an unhurried pace of life. Now, on a side note, we know that Jesus did nothing of his own initiative. I keep bringing us back to this point because I think it is so true. He only did what he saw his father doing. I think that we can safely conclude that God spoke to Jesus through his feelings of compassion to call for his people to pray for laborers. God spoke to him through his feelings of compassion to heal the sick. And God spoke to him through his feelings of compassion to perform miracles. The spontaneous feelings of compassion you may have for anyone in need could be God speaking to you. Perhaps he wants to do something miraculous through you. 
But in order for that to happen, you've got to be the soft heart, and you've got to be available to him, which means you've got to live an unhurried life. Now, to get a complete picture of mercy, let's look at a few more acts of mercy in the lives of other people in the Bible. Joseph's brothers hated him, could not speak peacefully to him. They conspired to kill him, but instead of killing him, sold him into slavery. And yet, upon meeting his brothers years later in Egypt, here is his reaction. Everyone turn to Genesis chapter 45. Let's take a look at his reaction. Genesis chapter 45, verses 1 through 11. This is when Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, who have treated him very unkindly. It says, Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God, he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near to me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all you have. There I will provide for you, and there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. It was mercy on the part of Joseph after being treated so badly by his brothers that caused him to accept his brothers and meet their needs. That's mercy. I consider the story from the life of Moses. Miriam and Aaron had spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married in Numbers chapter 12. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now Miriam and Aaron, you know, the whole story of Exodus and all the miracles and everything that God did through Moses... Despite all that, they despised Moses because of his marriage to a Cushite woman. They were so jealous of him that they spoke against him in open rebellion. I mean, do you remember this, any of the story of the Exodus? I mean, there was the people, and then there was Moses. I mean, there's a massive gulf between the two of them. He would often be with the Lord, and they approached the Lord, and they couldn't get near the Lord and near him. 
mean, so he was the Lord's anointed. He was special. And God obviously did some things through Aaron and through Miriam. But how does Moses respond to Miriam and Aaron? Well, the Lord gives us some insight into his response because in the next verse, verse 3 of chapter 12 of Numbers, it says this, and you really need to remember this. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. That word meek, we can substitute the word humble, and of course that means that you are near impossible to offend. Now our Lord said this, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn over their sin, and then what? Blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and guess what? Blessed are the merciful. I told you that these are all connected, all of these beatitudes. Here we see the humility of Moses. He wasn't concerned about his position or his title. Yet he's being insulted. This was a great offense because the scriptures say the Lord heard this. And the Lord acts immediately. This is why you don't bring an accusation against an elder or a pastor. Unless you have two or three witnesses. Because it's such a, an anointed, exalted position. Now, if they're in sin, you deal with it for sure. But there is a, a special relationship that Moses had with the Lord. And so the Lord confronts Miriam and Aaron. He says, after being confronted by God about the special relationship he has with Moses, do you remember what happens? Miriam is struck with leprosy. Now, perhaps if you were in Moses' shoes, you would think, well, good. You reap what you sow, Right? He deserved it. And I don't think that that would be wrong, and it wouldn't be sin. An eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But that wasn't Moses' response. In verse 13, he says this, And Moses cried to the Lord, O God, please heal her. Please. What mercy. Out of jealousy and fear, King Saul tried to take David's life. Saul's hatred of David cost David his friendship with his best friend, Jonathan. Saul pursued David in the wilderness for many years in futility. Sometimes he would be on one side of the mountain, and the other side was David. And David was constantly on the run because Saul was trying to kill him. Twice, David is given the opportunity to end Saul's life. Once when Saul went in a cave to relieve himself where David and his soldiers were hiding. And once when Saul and his men were sleeping. I mean, it was somewhere between 11 to 14 years, David was on the run. Day in and day out, night in and night out, not knowing if he would be attacked. So how does David respond when he was given the opportunity to take Saul's life. Well, 1 Samuel 24 tells us this. David speaking to Saul in one of those opportunities says, Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, it was mercy. 
in David, which caused him to spare the life of Saul. See, that is mercy. That is compassion. That is sympathy. That's the mercy that is to characterize the life of a child of God's kingdom. Now, what do these stories teach us about mercy? Well, I think they're so important that I put them up here. I want to begin with telling you this is what mercy doesn't do. And you can just read this because this is pretty convicting. Mercy, it never holds a grudge. Mercy never retaliates. Mercy never is vengeful. It never exposes somebody's weakness or draws attention to someone's failure. Mercy never recites a sin. It never thinks that they are superior. Mercy never lords it over others. See, that's what mercy doesn't do, which is another way, and maybe a kind way of saying that, well, this is kind of what I do. And maybe I'm not as merciful as I thought I was. And then that should scare you. And I say that in all directness. Because your lifestyle is to be one of mercy. That is a sign that you are a child of God's kingdom. But this is what mercy does. Merciful not only hears the insults of evil men, but the merciful heart reaches out to the very same evil men in compassion. The merciful forgive. The merciful are gracious. The merciful love. The merciful don't excuse evil. They don't tolerate it. But they reach out in sympathy and forgiveness and grace when truth is accepted. In short, the merciful lift up others. That's what mercy does. Now, I want to kind of close this morning with this idea of what I call I know you. I've said before, and just want to remind you, because I don't expect you to remember it, but God has always identified with his people. He identifies with the poor and the needy and the broken. And I want to develop that thought a little bit more. Do you remember the, the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist? Remember that story? When Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, it, that was a baptism for the repentance of sins. Did Jesus sin? No. This is why John said, you want me to baptize you? I need to be baptized by you. You don't need to be baptized by me. And Jesus says what? It needs to be done to fulfill all righteousness. But do you know what he was doing there? Do you know why Jesus was baptized for a baptism of repentance of sins? He was identifying with the people he was saving. It was a great act of humility. See, Jesus knows what it means to be poor in spirit. It was said of Jesus that he was very humble. Remember this? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly, in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I am gentle and humble, is another translation. So Jesus was, was known to be very, very humble, very, very approachable, even though he was fully God. He had all that power, right? Meekness is power under 
control. So Jesus knows what it means to be poor in spirit. He knows what it means to be meek. But I believe he carries a special place in his heart for those who are merciful. For in the day of judgment, he will say these words. Just listen to this in Matthew 25, 31 through 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in a prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to the one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. That is mercy. It is compassion and sympathy in action. Did you catch that? Now watch this. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. They saw, maybe even felt, but they did nothing. See, God identifies with destitute people, with broken people, with the poor. And it's the merciful, truly the merciful. They are those who reach out and give mercy. And you know what? In return, they receive mercy. Now, it's not in this life from other people. Yes, you can be merciful to other people, and they can respond in kind with mercy. Most of the time, you respond to mercy. Either you get nothing, or you'll get evil in return. But not with God. You give mercy to other people, he will be merciful to you. I'll close with a story. Early one morning in Dacula, Georgia, Matt Swatzel, he was driving home from a 24-hour shift as a firefighter in EMS. He was going off of 30 minutes of sleep, and he was less than four miles from his home 
on October 2nd, 2006, when he suddenly heard what he calls the most god-awful sound I've ever heard. Swalta, who was then 20, realized that he had fallen asleep at the wheel and crashed. And when he got out of the car, he saw the car of a 30-year-old June Fitzgerald. She was pregnant and with her then 19-month-old daughter, Faith. Faith survived the crash, but her mother and unborn sibling passed away. June's husband, Eric Fitzgerald, a full-time youth pastor, or full-time pastor, he grieved the loss of his wife and child with close family and friends, including young people from his student ministry. One young girl told him she couldn't help but think of how the driver of the car was feeling. He told her she was right, and that they should all pray for him. But it, see, it didn't stop there. To start, Fitzgerald extended mercy and forgiveness to Swatzel at his sentencing. As a county officer, he was facing a felony in harsh time. But Fitzgerald pleaded for a lesser sentence, saying, I didn't see why this accident and tragedy needed to ruin any more lives, said Fitzgerald. Swatzel paid a fine and did community service, but it didn't stop there. Fitzgerald's mercy, demonstrated by his forgiveness, has created a friendship now that is six years strong. The two men stay connected by meeting at least once every two weeks, attending church together and eating meals at the Waffle House and other restaurants, just the two of them. That is biblical mercy. I'm going to close with this quote a definition of mercy from Miller Erickson in his book on Christian theology. It says, God's mercy is his tender-hearted, loving compassion for his people. So he feels for us. It is his tenderness of heart toward the needy. If grace contemplates humans as sinful, guilty, and condemned, you see, mercy sees them as miserable and needy. And I think that that's what Eric Fitzgerald saw when he saw Matt Swatz. What's his name again? Matt Swatzel. A guy eaten up by guilt and condemnation, miserable and needy. And he reaches out to him. And so I'm going to ask you to do this this week. Just ask God, as this hopefully works, God, give us an opportunity to demonstrate that mercy this week and be on the lookout for that. Let's pray. Oh, merciful Heavenly Father, we thank you for the mercy we have received. And I pray that we would be merciful to others. Soften our hearts, slow down our lives, that we may feel compassion for others. And then in obedience to your leading, full of the Holy Spirit, respond. Be in the very hands of Jesus to those in need. For blessed are the merciful, 
for they shall receive mercy. And all God's people said, amen. Let's close with this song. And after the song, I want to ask, again, I love that people are you're here. We, I don't want you congregating in here. Just head outside and talk as much as you want. But let's exit that door or the doors in the front. Thank you.